Our context, by the way, for our first um, 24 verses, which is as far as we'll get, God willing, today. It's, it's really important to note, God never gave the Ten Commandments and then said, now, if you do them, I'll get you out of Egypt. Or if you do them, then I'll get you into the Promised Land. God pulled the people out because He loved them. Because He wanted them and He loved them. And maybe your Egypt's a little bit different than their Egypt, more than likely. I mean, theirs, there were obvious gods. People bowed down and worshipped them. There were obvious bondage. They were obviously slaves. They were obviously under the thumb of Pharaoh. I don't know what that is for you. But I bet you know what it's like to be in bondage. What it's like to be empty and to try. And the more how hard you work, it gets nowhere. No matter how much effort you put into it, it doesn't seem like you're going anywhere with it. And at the end of the night, you're more and more exhausted. You've tried harder and harder, and your heart gets harder with that effort. And the last thing on your mind is crying out to God. The last thing on your mind, because after all, come on, that's archaic. That's something I knew of other people that did, and they were lunatics. If you knew what they behaved like, you would say, this God must not be real. But it still nags you. It nags you like that song you can't seem to get out of your head when you wake up in the morning or at night. For me, a year ago, that was, what does the fox say? I could not get that thing out of my head, and it was like, I'd go to sleep at night and hear, it just didn't, it did not work for me. But better yet is this voice of a God that says, I love you and I want you. You could fight me. And you could fill that hole with everything else. It's never going to fill it because the hole's only God's size and he's infinite. So there's nothing big enough to fill it but him. But you could try. And the worst part is how good we are at faking that we're okay. But if you're honest with yourself, you know that no matter how hard you try and how much you convince everyone else, you just can't convince yourself for more than a minute at a time. Because every time the mirror is there, you look and you realize the person you're telling other people about is a total stranger to who you really are. And I understand why you come in a place like this and you feel battered and beleaguered and tired and because this is supposed to be the place where we could be honest. Well, we don't have to carry the luggage of those facades with us anymore. We don't have to put on the three-inch coat of paint on our faces to pretend like we're okay and convince everyone else that life is perfect. We can actually come together and throw our burdens down at the feet of God who gladly takes them. But once God does, because all he asked was, was trust. You trust me, I'll take you out. Just follow me, I'll take you out. And he brought him to Mount Sinai. And he gave him the law. The law wasn't to get him out. He had already gotten him out. The law was to keep him out. So they didn't go back to their bondage. 
Am I the only one in this room that knows what it's like to go back to my own bondage? It's weird. It's not a nagging song like God's Spirit would be calling me to love Him. It's like a a bear trap that I know so well on my ankle that it can close and I know exactly where the pain's going to hit. I know how, I know where I'm going to step. I know how it's going to snap. I know how it's going to feel. I know the timing of it. I know that wince and that disgust and that self-loathing and all that that comes with it. The desire to isolate and insulate from other people and then the desire to put on that facade and then be reminded at a moment like this that this is the time where we lay it down. In our previous chapter, which is chapter 3, in the last few verses, Moses is, is, in essence, he's preparing his replacement. Joshua has been an understudy, in essence, whether he knew it or not, for 40 years. But he tells them in regards to the battles that are in front of him in verse 22 of the previous chapter, you shouldn't fear them. You must Not fear them, for it's the Lord who fights for you. The Lord, your God himself. By verse 28, he tells him, command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him because he's going to go over and take the people over. Last week, we looked at it from the perspective that God's the battle fighter. He's the giant slayer. And he asks us to stay behind him so he can take down the battle. And then we can gather the spoil. Ideologically, that sounds wonderful. Theoretically, wonderful. The problem isn't the theory. It's how do we do it practically? How do I practically stay behind Jesus? Someone I can't see most of the time. Especially when, if you're anything like me, yesterday was a classic example. After seeing Rebirth's performance, and I know many of you saw it, it was banging. Most of us are still in awe how somebody as gentle and pristine as someone like Lorraine could turn into this like hip-hop and then slap D in slow motion. Those of you who hadn't seen it, I'm sorry, that's an inside joke I guess now. But afterwards, we were going to go get dinner, and I knew where we were going. My 17-year-old daughter didn't know where we were going. The girl she was with didn't know where we were going, but of course, they were ahead of us, walking. And there were a couple times we would stop somewhere, and they would walk for a period of time, and then realize sooner or later that they were alone, and they're following ahead of us, and return back. But it is a great reminder of how often I can do that with the Lord. Chapter 4 tells us how we can stay behind him. Six simple commands we'll have today. How to stay behind him. Read with me if you would, please, starting in verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land in which the Lord your God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, 
that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land in which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that, God, that has God so near to it? As the Lord our God is to us, for whoever, for whatever reason, we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in the, all this law, which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. Especially... Concerning the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. When the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may hear and fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven, with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. Thick darkness wasn't enough, but thick darkness as well. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire and heard the sound of the words, but you saw no form. You only heard a voice. He declared to you his covenant in which he commanded you to perform the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might observe them in the land in which you cross over to possess. Now, take careful heed to yourselves. For you saw no form in which the Lord spoke to you at Choreb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or a female, the likeness of an animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of a winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground. And of course, that always amazes me. I'm sure you've seen that also in Israel, or I should say, I'm sorry, in Egypt, where the symbol of eternity is a scarab. Some of you have seen that. You know what that is, right? That's a dung beetle. That's those beetles that roll up poop. Symbol of eternity. Think that through. Anyways, here we go. And you really want to worship that? You want to make something in the likeness of things that creep on the ground or the likeness of any fish that's in the water beneath the earth? Take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Oh, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people and inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swore that I would not cross over the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land in which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. But I must die in this land. I must not cross over the Jordan, but you shall cross over and possess the good land. Well, then take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. Make with yourselves and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything in which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I thank you for the privilege of what you're going to do in this time.
I love you so much, Lord, and I thank you for the blessing of being able to say yes to you. Have your way, Lord, now. Do beautiful and gorgeous things in this time. Open our hearts, Lord, and minister in them. Teach us and lead us and guide us in that, Lord, which brings you great pleasure. And Lord, I just want to thank you. Lord, bring salvation to this house today. Encouragement, strength. We commit it all to you now. Immerse me in your spirit and fill me, Lord, that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. And speak to every one of us individually where we need to hear and corporately as a family. May we have so much fun in your word now. May it come alive for each of us. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. In this chapter now, God is teaching how to stay behind Moses. Ultimately, Joshua, because he'll be the one that leads them into the promised land, and this is where it begins in verse 1. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, to observe that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord your God of your fathers has given you. Now, notice, by the way, the term here is listen. We're going to see this even more so by the time we get to the next two chapters with what many of you may be familiar with, the Jewish people call the Shema. The Shema comes from Deuteronomy 6. Shema means to hear. It doesn't mean to overhear. It means to discipline yourself to hear. This is where this starts. If we are going to be good followers of Christ, we need to be good listeners of Christ. We live in a generation, in all honesty, a society where overhearing is everything. Think about how much you listen to or you overhear even in many cases, choose to overhear and do something over it. The music when you choose to study, or the music when you choose to dance, or just clean your room to, you like some kind of background something happening. You're not purposely listening intently to what's being done there. It's just something to fill the air a little bit, sweeten it perhaps while you do what you do. My wife is a gift for overhearing. She's got a radar, and I'm sure many of you mothers, I don't know how, when this happens. My wife could be in another country. My children could ask a question, and I'm like, I think your mother went this, and the phone could ring. Oh, what I meant was this. Oh, okay. It's unbelievable she could be on the other side of the house. I could be doing sign language, and she could hear it. She has this innate ability to overhear. But to listen is another story. And there's a problem there. You ever have that situation where someone talks to you and you know what they're saying is important and the first minute you're locked. And then it's like you drift off into a mental coma. Your ears start to turn down and all of a sudden it's like... And all of a sudden it's like words aren't even being spoken anymore. Their mouth is moving, sounds coming out, but you're, you're like the part that interprets it as words shut off in your head. Or is it just me? Don't worry, if you're talking to me, that never happens with you, but it happens otherwise. And he tells us, if you're really going to follow me, you really need to learn how to listen. 
And I'm not good at it. I don't think any of us are. Are any of you really just naturally gifted at genuinely, intently, disciplined listening? When you tell someone, this is what I need you to do, it's really simple. You need to go this far, press only the red button, and they go, okay, go over there and press a button. And you go, ah, oh, that's not careful listening. As I, as I get all of these commandments, there's these prayers in my own heart that I write out. And here's my prayer to God in this. Can I, made of unfaithful fallen carbon, an easily distractible element, a metal easily fused to become cheaper, a less malleable alloy, shovel off all syrupy song lyrics, muddy-shoed trivial conversations, gusty gossip, and commandeer my wandering focus to just listen, not over here, but with a discipled, disciplined ear to listen to that same voice for even five text-free minutes. God, help me. But he didn't just say listen. He gave us two things to listen to. He says, now, O Israel, Shema, listen, intently listen to the statutes and the judgments. The word for statutes is the word chuk. Can you say chuk? Yeah, now wipe off the spit off the person in front of you. Chuk is a, an enactment, an appointment, time, space, or quantity. The easiest way to would say it in regards to a statute is normally a sort of a, a standard God sets up vertically between you and God. For instance, when God reviews in the next chapter the commandments, the first four of them are easily directed you and God. No other gods before Him. No carved images. You keep His name holy and make sure you don't profane the Sabbath. Those are all vertical. Does that make sense? They're, God's like, look at these are things. I want you to really listen to what I say about your relationship with me. I really want that first. But that's not the only one here. The second is the term mishpat. Can you say mishpat? It's a common word. It's still used to this day. And it is often used in regards to the judgments or verdicts given between people. So might I say it's the horizontal. Interesting, because Jesus nails this down when they ask, what's the greatest commandment? And he answers, well, to be honest, the first and foremost is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus just told them, if you will, the greatest statute and the greatest judgment. The greatest one first. Love God with all that you are. And then, love everybody else, your neighbor, as you would yourself. And it starts with that. Can we even listen to that? Could you imagine what would happen to this church if we just did that? If we genuinely, with an open heart, focused on listening to God throughout the day when God says, here's a moment when you can love me with your heart. Or you can love mammon. Here's a moment when you can love me with your mind or you can drip off into nonsense. Here's a moment when you can love me with your strength or you can just nap off into nowhere. You get the idea. Here's a moment when you can love your neighbor as yourself 
Or you can pretend like you didn't hear them call or ask for you. Or you could say you don't have time when you know you do. You ever have that where you're like, I'm not really sure. And you're, you want to say I'm kind of busy. And God says, no, you're not. And you're like, oh, do I have to ignore that voice to answer this? That's not a good option. But imagine if you were that loved. So you were free to love. And that in peace with God. So you are free to surrender all as we should be. So it starts with this. If we really want to possess the land God has for us, a place of great fruitfulness and abundance, oh, if that's going to be the case, and we, won't, we really want to live. I'm not talking about exist. I'm talking about thrive. That abundant life Jesus speaks about in John 10, it starts with this. We really have to be willing to listen. The problem is it's really hard to listen when we're busy hearing other things. Does that make sense? You ever have those moments? And I'm sure you must. You get into a conversation with somebody on a train and they get into one of those like like stomp tunnels. It's like somehow you get into the tunnel and the entire cast of stomp has made their way into the outside of the train. And you're like, hey, I was just saying this. And all of a sudden it's like, and nobody can hear anything anymore. And how much of my life is lived like that? God wants to speak to me, but I man, my... And my headphones are in. I've got all this stuff on my brain. And God goes, can we take a moment of silence? And some of us are afraid of that silence. Do you really think that the only thing God has to say to you is correction? What kind of relationship do you have with your dad? My heavenly father spends more time telling me he loves me than correcting me. And it isn't because I don't need correction. It's because I need to be confident that I'm being corrected by someone who loves me. And if we don't listen, we won't hear the first, and thus we will not listen to the second. How are you today on that? Interesting. When Jesus speaks about the people, he quotes Isaiah 6.10 when he says that the hearts of the people have grown dull and their ears hard of hearing, and their eyes have, they have closed lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, Oh, and that they should understand their hearts in turn and I would heal them. Jesus speaks about us being the salt of the earth. And, and by the way, that's in Luke 14. And he says, if the salt loses its saltiness, what's it, what's it useful for? Well, he tells us in verse 35, it is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghole. In other words, it's, you're not even good, you're not even useful for a pile of poop at that moment. Ouch. But men throw it out. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He doesn't say he who has ears. Everyone in this room, from what I can tell, have ears. Some of you show them off quite well. Some of you hide them quite well. But having ears and having ears to hear are two entirely different things. Eight times, of course, in the book of Revelation, the Spirit says to the church, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. He's like, hey, you've got ears, now can you use them? That's how this starts. But I do want you to know God's ears are open. They're always open to the cries of His children. As a matter of fact, this whole thing started with God speaking to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, when He said that I've seen the oppression of My people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters and I know their sorrows. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 22, it writes, In my distress, I called the Lord. I cried out to my God. He heard my voice from His temple, and my cry entered His ears. The promise in 2 Chronicles 7. By the way, perhaps you're familiar with the verse prior. It's one of the most beautiful situations in Scripture. Solomon has finally built the, the temple. And as he's built the temple, now he turns and, and, and he blesses God and then he blesses the people. And he says, God, in the simplest sense, we're idiots. He's not saying that because they're Jewish. He's saying that because they're people. Never forget that. And he says, we are prone to wander. We're prone to do stupid things. But when we do, and then we turn to this building, knowing this is your house, and we cry out to you, Will you hear from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive? God's response. Nice job, buddy. Loose paraphrase. But don't just believe me. Search it for yourself. I love your prayer. And then he says, If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves, pray and turn, seek my face, I will hear from heaven. And I will turn and I will, I will heal them. And I will forgive them and I will heal their land. And in the next verse, he says, because my eyes will be open and my ears always attentive to the prayer made in this place. You wonder why the Jewish people still bow down to a wall? It's the only remaining part of that building that God promised his eyes would be upon and his ears attentive to. We know that his ears are just as attentive here. Praise the Lord for that. So we better move forward if we're going to get to the others, yeah? But I'm giving you a chance to discipline yourself to hear for a moment the same issue. Second starts in verse 2. Take a look at that. We've made our way all the way to verse 2. We're really cruising now. And he tells us the necessity of keeping things the way they are. Now, we're not talking about growing and the problems that come with it, the blessings that come with it. What, he's, what, what we're talking about here instead is we're talking about the Word of God. And here's our problem. Our problem is that we are prone to try to make something contemporary because we keep thinking that somehow we have to help God out. Have you noticed that? Like somehow in it, it's maybe irrelevant. And if it's irrelevant... Well, then we should make it relevant. Here's the problem. The scripture isn't the issue. It's the culture. And that's the part the church is guilty of, if we're going to be honest. The problem is, is somewhere down the line, we keep thinking if we could bend scripture enough. You know, 10 years ago, we could have had it maybe said by the Teletubbies. Today, maybe we could have it said by one direction. If we can just get it done the right way. If we can get enough flash pots. We can get enough pyrotechnics. And if, well, we better not say that scripture because that scripture is culturally irrelevant. Well, there's our problem. But you can't follow God by changing what he says. Because when the Lord says go left and go left, and you go, well, I think we should go left, right, left, right, left, because it's a little more exciting, you're not following him anymore. Here's my prayer. Unchanging God in a culture of embellishments and staged reality show drama. I'm accosted with this irony. 
I am parched for intimacy, but easily bored. Addicted to the new, but can never be intimate with it. To be that close, I must first be that familiar. I need the unchangingness to it if I'm going to let it set my life's course and become the plumb line for my thinking. Unchanging God, forever perfect, there is nothing to improve in you. Thus, unchanging is imperative. Your word must mirror that. The issue will never be how relevant the the word is to culture, but how reflecting the culture is to your clarion standard. God, unchanging God, let me be unchanging in my following you. Today we live in a place where we're like, well, if we could just... Now, I'm not talking about the language is changing and they're trying to make it in regards to the language you speak. Some of you, to be honest, I love the old King Jimmy. I love the eths and so forth. And one of the reasons is it actually helps move with verb tenses you can't get in our common language. But I wouldn't necessarily use it when I'm out there sharing with a drug dealer or something down in King's Cross. Unless, of course, they're like part-time drug dealer, part-time Shakespearean actor, then they might really get it. But that's sort of a real niche. You all have to agree with me on that. But the word doesn't change. And I've been in places and seen the launch of Bibles that are like, well, this one is actually now much more relevant to the San Franciscans today. But if I really want to be relevant to a world that's decaying, that's like a doctor wanting to be relevant to his patients, so he wants to make sure he's as sick as possible. You really want to be different. Oh, another word for that, by the way, is holy. You're aware that's what it means, right? In the most base sense, holy means weird. Because holy means different. And God is, nothing is more weird than God. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be irreverent, I'm trying to be the opposite. What's weird is, I'm not used to this. You read the book of Revelation and you go, oh my goodness, there's these weird creatures. They're only weird because you don't see them every day. Now in Camden there are things close, but you don't see these guys every day. They're different because of that. And God is as weird as it gets because He's just not like everybody else. He's not like anyone else. Forever patient and infinitely kind as mercy endures forever. Which one of us goes close to that? And if we're too busy trying to make God like us, we will not become more like Him. Every time I wanted to become good at any particular sport, I found the guys I thought they were best at it, and they were usually guys that I was nowhere near, of course. So that I could seek to become like them, I could gauge my growth because they were so radically different than I was. I didn't think, well, I could just try to make them like me. That was stupid of an idea. How much more in regards to God and His Word? Will His Word offend you if you're living? Yes. Let's just be honest. If you've got a living flesh and a living flesh nature, God's Word is in, is targeting that. You want to be bitter? God's going to target that. You want to go on fulfill your lusts? God's going to target that. You want to be selfish? Go, God's going to target that. You want to spend time and just say nasty and horrible things to people? Well, God's going to target that. Whoever you are, God's going to target because he's the surgeon and he's starting to remove things. And he would really like you to be thankful when he removes the cancer from you. Because the goofiest thing is when he does the surgery and then you're like, I want that back. God's like, it was a tumor. You're like, yeah, but I really thought it was lovely weights. It gave me a really unique shape. It was the size of a rugby ball and I took it out of your abdomen. You should be thankful. No, I liked it. 
It was part of me. Yes, and now it's not. We read God's Word, and there are times where it's like, I don't like it, and God goes, so the problem is you or it. Which will take us to the next here in a moment. But can I just say this, please? If you were in a place right now where somehow your life, you're saying, it's okay, I know this is what Scripture says, or I kind of know this is what Scripture says, but I don't want to read it because then I'll know for sure. I'm just going to kind of ignore that and kind of make it up as I go along. Beloved, you are in the wrong place because i got to tell you, God really wants to be intimate with you, and you can't be intimate with somebody that you're running from. And so from verses 2 to 5, he just talks about that. Look it. Don't add. Don't take away. This will be reminded of Deuteronomy 12, Joshua 1, 7, Proverbs 30, verse 6. And it gets to this when it speaks of our day, and we'll move to the next. In Revelation, I should say this, 2 Timothy, let's do that, 4, 2. Paul is speaking, he's about to die, and he's writing to his pastor, and he says, look at, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. He goes, there's going to be a time where when you actually say, this is what I believe, people are going to look at you like you're an idiot, and those will be the people in the church. When all of a sudden, male and female bathrooms get removed for one corporate bathroom so that you don't have to be clear on what your gender is. You say, I believe that Scripture says this, and you're looked at as an idiot because you actually believe Scripture. Well, if that's the case, welcome to the idiot club. I want to hold on to Christ. I want to be an expert there. According to their own desires, because of their itching ears, they will barf up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. They'll exchange Genesis for grins. But you, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Verse 6 then tells us our third. Our first again, to listen. Our second, keep it as it is. Here's our third. Look at verse 6. Be careful to observe them. You'd say, well, duh. The problem is the word for observe. Can you say, asa? Asa means do it. Traditionally, observing meant to do it. Today, we think of observing more like people watching something at a distance. And thus the need to clarify. But people say, for instance, they might ask, do you observe Christmas? Well, it isn't like, well, I walk through Covent Garden. I see all kinds of balls hanging from the ceilings and places and lights. Of course, I observe Christmas. They're saying, do you do it? There is our danger. And here's my prayer. God, you know that the danger is the invulnerability of road ignorance. You've taught me the truest soldiers are more evaluated by their field experience than by their course marks. There are no scars in the classroom. There are also no trophies. The wind of adventure will never blow there either. The call to take possession of life-changing truth, God, 
becomes in me stifling, moldy, dank, distant stories if I don't put shoe on them. The ministry becomes a whipping boy, the object of my criticism if I will not get up and minister. Where they could have been my own personal wonders to tell, oh God, in my own heart, clear the bench. And that's my prayer here. I don't know a guy that takes the field that thinks he knows every play. That's confident that he'll do it perfect. Ask those who were part of rebirth how confident they were in every move. They've gone over them. They've had a chance to take it. But there's always that one spot where you're really hoping that you could still see that person out of the corner of your eye because it's going to be unison and you want to make sure you do it with them. But if you don't take the field, you'll never know if you'll ever score. And if you don't take the stage when God calls you there, you'll never know how amazing it is to take the stage. And for many of us, our shoes are too stiff and our brains are too full. Oh, please know that the only failure is staying on the bench when He calls you. Don't be afraid of failing. Be more concerned with failing to obey. I coached basketball, and some of you may have heard this, uh, back in America. In coaching basketball, we had this boy named Jeffrey. Jeffrey was not necessarily the most physically gifted individual. Jeffrey tripped when he walked, but he wanted to play basketball very, very, very badly. And, and as he kind of went on the team, he, he couldn't dribble with one hand. You kind of have to be able to dribble the ball with one hand and not actually look at the ball while you're doing it and be able to kind of do these things. But Jeffrey was valuable at one particular place. If you're familiar at all with basketball, there are things called free throws usually that happens after some form of infraction and you stand and one guy stands at the line and he's going to shoot while guys kind of line up on the sides to get the rebound. Well, Jeffrey wasn't necessarily very gifted at a lot of things, but he was really good at this. And what Jeffrey would do is he would take his shorts and he would pull them all the way up into his armpits. And then, and he had these beautiful bottleneck glasses. And then as the guy was about to shoot, he would just start going like this. And it worked. So many of the guys are like, stop it, stop it. And there was, of course, nothing in the rule books about a guy pulling his trousers up, giving himself a big wedgie and dancing like that. So, so I mean, the guys would be like, you know, you're, you're just trying to, uh, just don't look, don't look. <laughs> well, <laughs> bless Jeffrey, he was quite an asset on those free throw points. Well, sooner or later that gets that point where Jeffrey's there, and it's an important game. We're there, we're, we're, we're in playoffs, we're about to make our way to the semifinals. This is a really important time. Jeffrey thinks he's going to take the bench all the time. I'm like, bro, I need you. This is it. I need, pull up the dork defense like you've ever had it. And he's like, yes, coach, yes, coach, yes, coach. And he gets up there, and he pulls up his things, and he waits till the guys get the ball, and he's like in shooting position, pulls him up, whoa, and he just starts making all this noise. And as it's the case, the guy blows the shot. He's like, oh! And here's the best part. Jeffrey goes, oh! And in his hands, falls the ball. 
And this is a new revelation for him that there's more to the game than, than doing what he's done. So now he's staring at the ball, and he simply he starts to like go, oh, and he sounds like an opera singer. He's like, oh, he doesn't know what to do. So he, so he goes and he goes like this with the ball. He starts going like this, and he's got his other arm out just in case. So he's like, nobody come near me. Nobody come near me. He's going like this. Nobody come near me. Nobody. Oh, no, no. And he goes, oh, and he throws the ball up, and I kid you not, right through the net. It was the most beautiful shot you ever saw. The problem was he got the rebound from the other team. So he shot a point for the other team. So everybody's like, Jeffrey! And he gets totally silent, except one boy, one man, who stands up with these giant bottleneck glasses. That's, of course, his father. And he goes, that's my boy! Yeah! In your face! Because he had no idea how the game was played either. Here's the point, and believe it or not, there is a point to this, is that for the father, he just wanted his boy to do well. He didn't even care where it went. If he had thrown the ball and it hit a ref and knocked him out, he probably would have cheered just as loud. And probably, to be honest, more people would have cheered just as loud, but that's another story. But beloved, hear me. You have a father who just really wants you to, to, to enjoy the, the court, enjoy the field. And you're like, but I didn't do perfect, Dad. He's like, I didn't tell you you had to be perfect. I said, go on and have fun. Enjoy this walk with me. And you're like, start sharing the Lord with someone and they ask like one of those questions and like we think it's failure when you're like, I don't know. You don't have to know. You're not running the universe. Someone's like, well, who is Cain's wife? Why would you think I would know that? How old do you think I am? Sometimes I like to go, Meshugana, just to see what they respond. Now what are you going to do? I would, how you like me now? Meshugana means crazy, by the way, in Hebrew, just to make it more fun. He's like, uh, so you want to give your life to Jesus now, now that I told you who Cain's wife is? No, I just thought there was like Christian pepper spray. You know, like, who's Cain's wife? Okay, I'll stay away, I'll stay away. Beloved, please hear me. There is actually something refreshing about saying you don't know. Because the truth is the truth when you say it regardless. I do know this. God really loves you and he would rather die than live without you when he sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins and mine. And he died there so that all of it could be paid and he rose again on the third day and he deserves to be the Lord and Savior of your life. And if you want to know more about Cain's wife, ask him once you get a relationship with him. He knows. Do you know how much bat guano was left in the caves of Chile? No. Ha! Who cares? It's irrelevant information. That's the point. Beloved, please hear me. Get out there and do it now. Listen. Don't change it. Do it. How's that? And let's pick up the rest of this as we bring this around now. And he tells us, for what nation is there, verse 7, look at it with me. What nation is there that God has so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? I mean, can you imagine, do you realize that what other people are trying to say, they're running around in their orange things with their, you know, their drums, right? And they've got the mustard on their head and they're dancing through the rain and all of that with their little speakers because they think that things will grow nicer if they say their words. They don't have a relationship with God. They don't even claim to. 
There are people that are out there right now covering themselves up because they really don't want to stumble anyone. But it is amazing to me how their toes are really well done and how there's so much makeup on the little bit of the face you see. But that's another story. And I'm not trying to be irreverent. But it's like, you know, anyways. But, and it's like, but there's no relationship in all of that. And they're taking their trips and they're praying and they're fasting and they're doing their stuff and they're giving and they're all of this. And they're standing there and they're giving you their pamphlets and they're doing whatever. But they don't have a relationship in that. Because what group of people is there where God is so near that we could ask Him whether He wants salt or sweet popcorn? Irrelevant questions. Who's Cain's wife? God, I just want to ask you this morning, what shoes? You don't give me an answer, I'm going to pick these. Cool, all right. Lord, can I'm weird enough to go on dates with God. I'll get on those moments, I'll get in a coffee shop, and I'll just be like, I'll order tea. And, and I'll just be like, Lord, just, just talk to me. Just, just hang out. Let's go for a walk you know, in, in the park somewhere. And God's got bouquets for me everywhere I walk. I love that. He's like, man, what other group of people? Do you realize what everyone else is trying to find in money and in fame and in power we have in Christ? And we didn't even have to pay for it. He did. They're trying to find power and we have unlimited in Christ. They're trying to find peace we have unlimited in Christ. They're trying to find hope we have unlimited in Christ. They're trying to find love I have unlimited in Christ. And how in the world would I trade any of that in for what they are still haven't found in what they're chasing after? Did you even realize how benefited we are as people? How benefited? We're the stupidest, most insane people in the world if we want to trade that in for what they can't seem to get with what they are chasing after. Man, and then we want to be like them? We should be weird. We smile on a rainy day. I love the rain. What's wrong with you? Jesus? That's what's right with me too. Oh, beloved, please hear me. He sticks us in the middle because He never wants you to forget. Obeying Him is not obeying a law because He's a government. Obeying Him is because there's a politic with every relationship. And with this relationship, if I'm going to follow Him, I've got to listen to Him. And I don't want to change His words, but do it. And if I listen to what He said, He would say, follow me. If I didn't change Him, I would hear Him say, and I'm going to make you fish you a man. Men. Now let's go do it. Do you realize God is near you? He's never asked you to do anything and then come back and report later about it. He's there doing it with you. Remember, He leads you into the battle and you collect the spoils. The rest of it is how to do that. So verse 9. Take heed to yourselves and diligently keep yourselves. The word, by the way, is the same in both cases. The word shemar. Can you say shemar? means to guard and put a hedge around. Me'od is the other word. It means really do it. In other words, it goes guard and really guard yourself. From what? From idols. From the tangible. That's the problem. Man, I need a guy. I need a girl. I need a this. I need a that. I need to touch this. I need to hear it. I need to smell it. I need to feel it. That's the problem. And he's saying, idol-proof yourselves. Because what this is, is the thing that says, stop following Jesus. Go over here and do this thing. And you know what it's like, because you probably walk, some of you walk through Camden on your way here. And everyone's like, get you whatever. I get you whatever. You need one more studded bracelet. And you need this. And oh my goodness. And you need this really offensive t-shirt. And oh, you know, and they're yelling these things out at you. Try to walk through the food stalls. 
You can be like sweating past and people are like, oh, still try this, you try, you try this, you try this. I'm like, no, for your sake, I'm not going to eat that. And the idea of here is like, if you're going to follow me, stay on me, stay on me. Because there's a gauntlet of places to turn off, of outlets and offshoots and off ramps that are into all kinds of stupid things that, by the way, would be better than a horrible world, but don't possibly compare to a perfect God. How desperately my eyes search like an infinite stomach with yearning hands, my worldly data funnel, while my heart grows deaf to that still small voice, my eyes dull to God's ubiquitous glory, all because my soul's hands would just grope like my fleshy claws do for the fading things of this limping orb. Oh, how starving I am for nonsense. And you know what the problem is? There is an endless all-you-can-eat buffet of nonsense in the world. And he goes, look at, I know who you are. I know your weakness. And I know your weakness is that it's like you've got spiritual ADD. It's like, God, I will follow you with all of my what? Huh? You know? And it's like, God knows that. Aren't you thankful he doesn't put shock collars on us? I deserve one. And the last thing on this, by the way, is to teach. Notice in verse 9 as well, it, tells, it says, teach your children. I do find it interesting that if you know anything, you can teach it. You may not be the best communicator, but whether you know it or not, every human being is a teacher. We teach people by example. We teach them by warning. I've learned so many things from people in regards to what not to do, even many people that I love that I've seen in my past. You only have to watch one guy die in front of you to learn not to do that drug. Not to try that thing. Not to mess with that crowd. And I've watched enough people die in front of me to learn a lot. When you have a brother that ODs after becoming, in essence, the leader at a rehab house, you learn from that. Or you will teach others your nonsense. So don't for a moment think you're not teaching. And if you don't have any physical children, you have people that follow you that are part of your peeps, your crowd. I'd like you to consider the term listening rights. Every one of you has it with someone or a group. People that listen to you. Listen, please. For a moment, if I have yours, I think the most despicable of all of it are Christians that seize upon new Christians and convince them that they shouldn't be passionate about God because they're bitter about something in their own life. And they'll try to get them into their camp, their doctrinal camp. They'll get them into their, their sort of liturgical camp, whatever way they, do, they go on, whatever way they swing on it or whatever, instead of the, what, and because it intimidates people when you just love Jesus. And it intimidates them because if you were really just on fire for Christ and you loved Him, other people would make fun of you when they would point and you know that could be other people within the church. And, and I mean that in mass. <laughs> but you don't care. You're not going to be, you're, you're not going to be just thrown into one of those little categories and decide whether you're amity or dauntless or whatever. You're one of those people that, to be honest, it's like you're much more divergent than that. 
You're not going to be trained and, and, and funneled into something and become part of the, the, the batch of, of new individuals that all look and act the same. You're going to fall in love with God. And that's what we need to teach people. What we're actually teaching in this case is what it looks like to follow, aren't we? Imagine what it would be like to try to teach other people how to discipline their listening. But I'll be honest with you, and hats off to you. You all know that you can go through drive-through church here in this, you know, in this city. You pop in, you sing your song, it's number 416 or whatever, and then you do your 10-minute sermonette, and then you pop in for your little Christianette thing, and then you're gone and you can take your box. And you guys sit here and listen to this crazy guy speak for like an hour. Now, maybe some of you are getting really good at texting or just good at staring off into space, but I'd say for most of you, maybe all of you, you've really done a great job of disciplining some form of listening, and I'm very impressed by that. But I am, I'm always been a like, all you can eat, let's see how much that is kind of person, and I'm that way with the word. But sooner or later, if what we're going to learn is to follow, to follow Christ, not follow man, but to follow Christ, we will be teaching others that very simple thing. And this is how I want to wrap this around. The rest of our text here, by the way, take heed to yourself. And all of these verses, look at it with us. 15, take heed to yourself because God didn't show himself in a form so you couldn't take his picture. Verse 16, by the way, be careful lest you act corruptly and make for yourself a molded image. <coughs> Verse 19, take heed because what's going to happen is you would lift your eyes and say, well, I can see a moon. I can worship that. I can worship the stars. I can worship the sun. I can worship Mother Earth, but she seems to be doing really poorly right now, you know, or whatever. And people wanted to worship her and now she's angry. Uh, it's weird how that works. You know, uh, in the end of it all, verse 23, be careful, watch, take heed to yourselves lest you forget the covenant of your God because God, verse 24, is jealous. Why is he jealous? Because he's somebody who wants something. And anybody who wants something can be jealous. But you're only jealous of what you want. And the only thing God is jealous of is you. That's not a character flaw. That is the opposite. God wants you. And anything that takes you away from him, he's jealous of. Because he wants you. Your intellect. Your pride. You're lined up ducks in a row of all these great reasons why people have hurt you in the past, which I'm not devaluing what that they've hurt you, but the idea is stop hurting yourself by running from God for it. That's like people have done nasty things, so you'll punish them by drinking poison. That'll show them. And that's what it is. And you're running from God to do so, and you're hurting yourself. And God says, I love you, and I'm jealous for you, can you please let me take the stuff that's between us away so I can be with you? Look at Jesus says, follow me. We have to listen to follow. Not over here. Listen. And as he speaks, we listen and we don't change it. We don't add, we don't take away, we listen. And we keep it as it is. If the Bible says it's wrong, it's wrong. God's never going to take a vote. Scripture says, let all men be a liar and God still is good. He's still going to be true. There's no majority here. God's majority. He's infinite. At all the people of the world, they're still not infinite. He's still bigger. He will always be the majority. So follow me. Listen. Don't change it, but do it. Then well, that's the case. Now watch yourself. Watch yourself from running off into dumb things that even are Christianese, but not Jesus. 
in that, teach other people what it looks like to follow. Beloved, hear me as we go to prayer. Do you realize that's what real discipleship is? It's something we get so intimidated by because we're like, we feel like it's got to be a program. We feel like it's got to be something where we have to have the handbook and we've got to have this. Listen, think about in Scripture how Jesus discipled. Think about how Paul discipled. Do you ever read Paul's discipleship manual? It's like scoop up a kid somewhere in South Turkey and then not know where you're going. Try to go into Istanbul, not get there. Try to go into Ephesus, not get there. Wind up in Troas, and when you're there, wake up in the middle of the night because you got a vision of a Macedonian man, then wake up everybody and say, we're going to Macedonia now because you saw a Macedonian man. And then go to Macedonia, go to the one place you think would be most man-heavy, a garrison. That's a place where all soldiers retire. Should be a heavy place for guys. And then hang out at a waterfront with a bunch of gals so you can preach Jesus to them. And then... One of them is wealthy because she sells purple. It's another story. And then you get to go and stay at, their, at her house. And this isn't like, hey, I've got, I've got a little slinky thing. Come over. He, Paul's got an entourage. She's a wealthy gal. She's got servants. He's staying at a manor. And so he gets to stay there with his boys in this house. And from there, they go out and they start preaching Jesus. And as they do, they cast a demon out of a servant girl. And then the servant girl, the owners of the servant girl, flip out and they have him beat publicly, thrown in prison, where they're thrown in the, the, the latrine in the center of the prison. They sing Praises to God. God destroys the prison. And then they get a parade out of town. Welcome to discipleship. Who wants to join the next mission trip? Stripes. You got them. Beatings. Comes with it. Pay. Oh, you'll pay. Where are we going? I don't know. And if I tell you, I'll probably have to change it. Jesus says, follow me. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Could you imagine that would be discipleship? But if you do follow me, what you might discover is what a quiet time looks like, because I have those. What it looks like to pray when weird things happen. Weird things happen to me all the time. Some of you have that too. I'm like a weird thing magnet. Sometimes I create them. I'll grant you that. But you pray. And you watch God provide in ways that you never expect. You keep your eyes open as wide as you can because to be honest, usually it comes from a place you'd never expect. And then you step forward. And then you get another quiet time. You seek the Lord and say, I'm available today. And God pulls you out and He uses you. And you're like, what was that? And you're with somebody and you're trying to look cool. So you're like, yeah, I knew that was going to happen when you really didn't. And you're like, to be honest, I'm just as amazed as you are. Welcome to discipleship. Follow me as I follow Christ. Could you do that? You know what the danger is? People might see you as human. Well, that's because you are, right? You're aware of that? And the more that you are, and I'm not trying to say be a jerk, just be human, watch God change you, is what will happen is people will watch you grow and you'll have to get serious with your walk because you know what affects other people. It does already. You're just more aware of it. Open up the Bible and read. And you're like, well, what if I don't understand the passage? Good. Then pray and move on. Say, I bet the next time we read this, we might get this. Because wouldn't you agree with me? Isn't it refreshing when somebody doesn't pretend like they know everything? As we pray, beloved, the Lord calls you to follow him. But for you to follow him and for me to follow him, we're going to have to listen. We're going to have to unchange what he says. We're going to have to do what he says. And as it's the case, we guard ourselves from running off into stupid other things, to running off into 
trying to run under the tangible versus following him. And then be used to teach other people and lead them to follow. If we are going to follow Jesus, we are going to follow him to the leper, to the woman caught in adultery, to the tax collector, people we had never gone to otherwise. Or if we had, we wouldn't have gone for the right reasons. To the drug dealer. To the kid drug dealer. To the pedophile. To the murderer. Now, I'm not telling you to throw yourself in harm's way. What I am telling you is, everybody needs Jesus. And if we're all available to him, he'll use us. And that's the stripper. I'm not telling you guys go into a strip club and say that that's ministry. We are all aware that that's not. But we have a group that we know that they go out and they take, they go out to the back alleyways when they go out for a smoke. Please hear me. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to follow him to the cross. And at the cross, we're going to have to lay down ourselves to follow him. Cuz we're going to leave who we were before so we can follow him in victory. So our past is no longer a weapon. It's no longer a tool of the enemy or ours at our disposal. It is now laid in the grave for us to follow him and be the new creation he called us to. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? Have you accepted his gift on the cross? Because if you haven't, I'm going to give you that opportunity. If you have, my prayer is today that God would genuinely so capture our hearts we would listen. Unchanging, follow, do, guard ourselves, and then be used to draw others to do the same. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank You so much for this beautiful text. I thank You, Lord, for what You've taught us here today. I thank You, Lord, for those who feel like they're sort of the Jeffries of the group, that feel like the best thing they can do is sort of hike up their trousers and act goofy. Ah, There may even be a ministry in that. But Lord, I want to pray that For those, Lord, that you show them that there's still a place on the team for every believer. Yeah, we may come scarred, Lord, but if we've come scarred, then heal us. We may come with baggage and with angst and bitterness and and we just have a past, some of which we've done ourselves, some of which has happened to us. But Lord, heal us from that. Deliver us from that. Show us that that's just an Egypt you want us out of. There may be some in here and they're running from you. They're trying to make up their own rules. They're not really trying to follow you. They're just trying not to go to hell. But today, Lord, show them that there's no victory other than following you. And what they're really looking for can only be found in you. Give them the humility to say yes to you. And trust that wherever you lead us will be best. Lord, please teach us how to listen. How to unchange what you say. How to do what you say. You've taught us, Lord, that it isn't the man who hears your word that's blessed. It isn't the man with the invincible house because he hears your word, but he does it. And in that, Lord, Guard us that we would be people even here, God, 
that would not be led astray by every person waving something shiny before us. Lord, teach us how to really love you as you deserve. And Lord, in this room, if there be any, Lord, and I, and I want to send a shout out not just to, to those who um, are no, knowing that they've never really said yes to you, but those maybe who just really haven't said yes to you in a long time. And they know who they are. They know they can put on the face and, they've, and I just have it on my heart that there's, there's at least someone, if not more, that you know how to play the game. You know how to put on the face. You know how to play the facade. You know how to really convince people. And you've been so tired of it that you thought this whole thing was a joke. And you went off and, and lived whatever life you lived and you're so sick of it. It's like bile in your mouth. It's so bitter and it's burning you. And even now your heart's pounding because you know the Lord's saying, come to me. Follow me. Leave this behind. And you're afraid. But right now, God's arms are open. And He wants to change. He wants to put peace where there's no peace. He wants to heal all of these things that you're so angry about. He wants to deliver you. He wants you to recognize where you're at is in Egypt and He wants you out. So right now in this room, whether you've ever, you've never said yes to Jesus or you've just really not been there any times recent. For all of us, I'm going to pray this prayer and at the end, I give you the chance at the end, if you agree, so you can listen and you know what you're saying. At the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident, resounding Amen and what you're saying is, I agree, that's my prayer. That sure is my prayer. And here it is. God, I'm so tired of fighting you. You don't deserve it. And I ask your forgiveness. I've given myself good reasons that have turned out not to be very good at all in the end. But I'm trying to be honest with myself. And in being honest with myself, I need you. I need you. I, I don't want to open my heart, but I know I need to. And if I open my heart even a little bit, that's what comes out is I need you. I need you. I need you so bad. And so God, right now in this room, <clears throat> I know that Jesus, you died on the cross so that all of the crimes of my heart could be properly punished. I know that. I know that you literally died because it, that's the, what the crime deserves. You were tortured to death. And I was a part of that because it was my crimes you were paying. And yet, in all that, you did it because you love me. I've seen hypocrisy. I've seen a lot of things, but they're not you. You died for me. And just like Scripture promised, you rose again on the third day. But you've given me a choice, and that choice is to say yes to you. Not just 
to vanquish all of my guilt, but to receive your love and your leadership. And that's the part that's harder for me. And, and I just, today, it, I'm, I just got to risk it and I'm going to say yes. I'm saying yes to that now. Yes to your payment. And yes to your lordship. Oh God, overcome my fear. Overcome my angst and my, and my anger and my bitterness and overcome my confusion. And surround me with people who so love you that we could walk together in this. Because I don't want to do this even without arms to hold. I need you, God. I need you so bad. And please, now, you want me more than I need you. So receive me. Take me. And do with me as you wish. I know it's better. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask for a confident, resounding Amen. Lord, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for those who have said yes to you today. While heads are bowed for the moment as we prepare to leave now, and this is just between you and me, if you've prayed that prayer today, would you just get eye contact with me? What you're saying is, I prayed that prayer today. Don't freak out. I'm not going to, you know, shout, I'll showcase you. I see you. I see you. God bless you, sister. I see you. I see you. I see you. I see you. Oh, Lord, thank you. Now, gouge out the grief. Bring in the healing. Make us complete in you. I know you are rejoicing right now. Thank you, Jesus. Bless, bless, bless my brothers and sisters. And fill them with your peace. Overcome them now, even beyond what they thought would happen when they said yes. confidently secure them and assure them now, Jesus, in your name. Amen.